All right, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. It's on page 969 in those Bibles. And if you're using an electronic device, like a phone or something like that, we are using the NIV, the New International Version. Um, if you're brand new here, we've got, uh, hopefully you got one of these bro green brochures on your way in um, called New Here. And on the inside, there is a sermon application guide, and you can uh, use this to take notes, and there's questions for reflection, and on any given week, you can pick them up on the way in. There's kiosks that, that carry them every, um, we'll have them there every, every week. So we uh, started a series at the beginning of the year on uh, this week five on the Sermon on the Mount. So it's covering from Matthew chapter five until the end of Matthew chapter seven. And so we are, um, we're in Matthew chapter 5 still. So, sit down. So, um, today and next week, uh, and, and the series is called The Good and Beautiful Life. So, today and next week, we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 20, all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 48. And we're not going to be looking at all the details, um, We'll kind of come in and out of some of the details because there's just too much here. Uh, but we really can't get the individual parts unless we get the whole. And that's what I hope we come out of this week and next week as we look at this passage. Um, grasping the whole is not easy. It's pretty difficult. Uh, I'd like to spend about five or six sermons on it. And I'd like to spend five or six sermons on it because it would buy me more time to get my whole head around it. <laughs> That's the reality. It's usually at the end of a series that I finally understand what it's been I've been preaching about. Uh, so um, I really think there's some things that if you're familiar with the Bible, I think there's some things I'm going to share with you that are going to just open up whole new vistas on reading the Bible. And, um, and there's going to be a lot, a lot. But pulling it together is daunting. So... Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at this like from a 20, 30,000 foot level, dipping in every once in a while. And here's a question that is going to organize this week and next week. And the question is this. How can I obey Jesus when Jesus commands the impossible? As we read this passage, we already saw it last week. We looked at a couple of this, a couple of Jesus commands here. If you read these, this passage, you go, if I'm really understanding this, this is impossible. And the reality is, it's why I've mentioned this more than once, give this to someone who's never heard of the Sermon on the Mount. Have them read this passage, this passage I'm going to read. And they hate it. They think it's abusive. They think it's way too much. That nobody can expect this from anybody. And, um, and when they read it that way and they see there's no way that anybody can expect this of anybody, there's a sense in which they're actually reading it as it is meant to be heard. And so we'll be coming at it from that perspective. So we're going to pray. And the prayer I'm going to pray is from Matthew chapter 6. We're in our second movement of our worship service. And what we do during this movement is we listen. We listen to God as he speaks through his word. It's his spirit that makes it come alive in us. It's his spirit that empowers it in our lives. And so we ask his spirit to guide us as we look at his word. So this, uh, this prayer is based on Matthew chapter 6. So please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we want to seek you first. 
Give us eyes to see you. Give us ears to hear your voice. Turn our hearts to you and remind us that true treasures and lasting hope can't be found in the things of this world, but only in a life with you. By your Holy Spirit, give us understanding as we look to your word. Transform us by your truth. May our lives be a reflection of your goodness and your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I'm going to read the passage, and as I read it, I'm not going to read all of the passage, but as I read, the parts that I read, and I'll show you where you know, we're skipping forward, don't miss the impossibility of doing what Jesus is saying to do. So beginning in verse 19, we're going to go back a little bit. Um, we're going to look at the passages that we looked at last week and then move on beyond that. So in verse 19, Jesus, talking to his disciples, says, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands in the Bible he's talking about and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, remember we talked about this last week. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were the quintessential keepers of the law. And he says, your, your righteousness and needs to surpass their righteousness. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, and now he quotes the Bible, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka, which is an insult, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fires of hell. Skip to verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Skip to verse 31. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Verse 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, do not break your oaths, your oath, but fulfill it to the Lord. Fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all. Skip to verse 37. All you need to say is a simple yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. And then verse 48 
Kind of crowns the whole thing. Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So my oldest son has this thing that he does with his two-year-old son, and he does it all the time. And whenever I'm around, he says, Dad, watch. I don't know how many times he's done this. Dad, watch. And so his two-year-old son, my grandson, loves little cars and little trucks. You know, from that size to that size, you know. He always has one in his hands. He's always playing with trucks and cars. And so he takes the car, he takes the truck, and he holds it up in front of his son. And this is what he wants me to see. He says, Hank, if you don't scream for the rest of your life, when you turn 16, I'll buy you a brand new truck. And my grandson immediately screams. <laughs> so what's going on is, is that my grandson, my son knows that my grandson has no idea what he's promising. <laughs> he actually thinks his dad is telling him to scream. There's a little subtlety in there that he just can't get. And he has no idea what it means, I'll get you a brand new truck when you turn 16. So my son is safe, you know. Um, by the way, this, back, this, backfired, this kind of thing backfired on me when my son was probably in about fourth grade. We were at the YMCA, and I got about as close to the wall as I could get in the basketball court, and I tried to shoot a basket to make it in from the side. And every time, I just had to do it two times, it hit the ceiling. There's a track above. It hit the ceiling. Like, I'm like, okay, you cannot make it from here. It's impossible to make it from here. So I said to him, and Michael, come over here. I said, if you make it from right here, I'll give you $10. I thought I was safe. He shot it, and the bugger made it. I thought it was impossible. Not, not only was it impossible because of the ceiling, there's no way he was going to make it. But he made it, and I didn't account for the fact that he was shorter than I was. And I don't know why, but... That was the hardest $10. I'm like, this kid doesn't deserve $10. And, and I didn't want to part with that $10, but I had to give him the $10. So this can backfire on you. But this one's not going to backfire on him. So imagine with me, now my grandson is 15 years old, just turned 15. And his dad, my son, calls him aside and says, son, if you don't, and then we can fill in the blank, all right, if you don't do this thing, if you don't, and fill in the blank, for the next 12 months, I'll buy you a brand new truck when you turn 16. Now, the fill in the blank has to be something that my grandson does all the time, okay? So I don't know what he's going to be like when he's 15, but let's just say he yells at his sister all the time. If you don't yell at your sister for the next 12 months, or if you don't talk back to your mom for the next 12 months, or... If you don't pick on your younger brother for the next 12 months. So it has to be something that he just does all the time. Because if it's something that he does all the time, there came a point in his life, and you know this because it's true of your own life, there comes a point in your life where that fill-in-the-blank thing is something that you just do automatically. You don't have to think about it. You just do it automatically. You do it naturally. Um, so he will naturally, without thinking about the truck, do one of those things in the next hour, the next week, 
the next day. It's just, he's going to do it because it's just going to happen naturally. He's not going to be able for probably more than a day to keep that truck in mind not to do it. Now, the only way he could do it is if he builds a guardrail, kind of like we talked about the Pharisees last week. He could build a guardrail, and the guardrail would have to be something like this. For the next 12 months, I am not going to speak to my sister, my younger brother, or my mom. And he'd have to stick by it. No speaking to them at all. Good luck trying to do that. But that's the the only way, because otherwise, opening his mouth, he will naturally do whatever it is that is his habit of doing. When Jesus says, you know, it says don't commit adultery, but you know if you even lust... You've already committed adultery in your heart. He's commanding the impossible for almost all of us. Because it's second nature for almost all of us. When Jesus says, don't even be angry. Murder is wrong, but if you're angry, you're guilty before God of murder. He's commanding the impossible because for most of us, if not all of us, anger is second nature for us. It's just going to come out. When Jesus says don't retaliate when someone harms you, if they take your shirt, give them their coat as well. If they persecute you, love them. If they persecute you, love them. He's commanding the impossible. Because retaliation and hate, it's second nature when someone hurts us, robs from us forces us to do something. So throughout history, theologians have made this point. They've said, yeah, that's his point. It's impossible. You can't do it. Only Jesus can do it. And we need his grace. And that's true. It's true. But it's not the whole answer. Because Jesus in the rest of the New Testament actually does hold a very high ethical standard. And he actually does expect us to live that way. That's why I started in verse 19 through 20. Where it says, if you start taking away from the commands of God, you'll be least in the kingdom of heaven. And if your righteousness doesn't surpass that of the Pharisees who were meticulous at keeping the law, you will not even enter the kingdom of heaven. So if you think that Jesus is offering a set of impossible commands just to show you that you can't keep them, that you need his grace, if that's, if that's the final answer, are you willing to apply that to what he says about divorce? I mean, are you, are you really saying Jesus has no expectation that you stay within your marriage? When you pledge to each other, It's just an exercise in futility. You can't do it. You will fail. No one thinks that. But we do that to his other commandments. And Jesus is actually calling us to live this way. What he's saying there is actually how he wants us to live. And it's impossible. (laughs) As impossible as for my grandson to keep from screaming. Even if he understood everything that was being promised to him. So how can we obey Jesus when Jesus' commands are impossible? 
We're going to have three answers. Uh, it could change by next week. <laughs> I've put all three answers in your outlines. Uh, but I'm only covering part of number one. So the very first thing, if we're going to obey Jesus' impossible commands, we have to love his commands. We actually have to love his commandments. The Bible is filled with expressions of love for God's commands. And you won't keep God's commands at a heart level the way Jesus, because he goes for the heart. He's like, that's part of the reason he says you've got to surpass the Pharisees. He says, I'm going at a deeper heart level than you've seen any Pharisee go. And they went for the heart level. But he says, I'm going to take it deeper than they do. So um, you're not going to do it unless you love his commands. In Psalm 119, verse 97, in Psalm 119 is just filled with this. He says, oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. I love, love your law. Lots and lots of passages like this one in the Bible. Now, if you read the Bible, very early on, um, if you've ever done like a read through the Bible type of thing, you know, you start with the book of Genesis and you're going along and it's, it's really a pretty, pretty high action book. Nobody has trouble getting through Genesis. Nobody who's going to read through the Bible quits in Genesis. It's a great story. And then Exodus just continues on. It's like this really great story. Lots of action, lots of things that are happening. When you get to Exodus chapter 20, I think, um, it starts to shift because all of a sudden uh, God pronounces the Ten Commandments through Moses. And so you are, um, they're okay because they're simple, they're understandable, they're relatable. But starting the very next chapter, it goes deep into the weeds. I mean, deep, deep, deep into the weeds. It starts talking about the clothing that the Jews can wear, about the foods they can't eat, about cleansings that they need to do for various kinds of things. I mean, it goes deep, deep into the weeds. It talks about the details of the building of the tabernacle, all this sort of thing. And then when you get to the end of Exodus, you get to Leviticus, and that's when it's like, not again, because the whole book is that. And that's where most people quit when trying to read through the whole Bible. It's just law after law after law after law. And then numbers is pretty bad too. There's, there's some good stories mixed in with laws. And then a story of their failure and then laws and story of their failure and some more laws. And then you get to Deuteronomy and you go, if you've made it that far, you go, hopefully now. And there's some great stuff in Deuteronomy, but almost all of it is like Moses says, okay, I gave you the law. We're about to go into the promised land. Let me go over it again with you. And it's mind-numbing. It has some stories, but it's mostly mind-numbing type of laws. So most of us would read these laws, and some of them are really obscure, and some of them are very weird. And you have to ask the question, how in the world could I ever love God's law? I could maybe come to love the Ten Commandments, but how could I ever love the law? Because the law is the whole first five books. Now, I'm going to raise the ante a little bit. All right. We're going to look at one of those laws. Just one of those laws. By, so, by the way, there's, there's basically 618, uh, 611 laws. The rabbis counted them. Some rabbis said, no, there's 613. It's kind of a weird way they came up with 613. It's basically 611 or 613 laws. And dozens of passages that say, I love your laws. I love all 611 of them. 
never says that, but that's what it means. I love all 611 of them. And it doesn't say admire, I respect, I work hard to keep your laws. It says I love your laws. So here's one of those laws included in the ones that they love. Deuteronomy chapter 21. When you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your home and have her shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, people that you killed, then you may go to her and be, um, go to her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave, since you have dishonored her. Can you love that law? I actually think you can begin to love it. I told you I was going to up the ante. <laughs> I think you can begin to love it if you know how God's laws and commands work. If you know how Jesus' laws and commands work, even those impossible laws that he just gave us, I think you can come to love it. I think you can begin to love hearing Jesus say, anger, lust, and hate, get them out of your life rather than simply being condemned by them. I think you can love them and you can live towards them. So you need to know something about God's loves, God's commands in order to love them. And I'm just going to give you one thing and then I'm going to finish that next week and then give you a couple of other things that you need. So here's the first thing. And this is going to be very new for a lot of you. And I hope you hear me carefully because some of you may think, I can't believe you're saying that. But I'll prove it to you. God's individual commands are often accommodations of his ideals to our brokenness. God gives a specific command in Scripture, one of the 611. I'm saying it's not his ideal. It's an accommodation to our brokenness. Many, many, many of the laws are accommodations to our brokenness. They're not his ideal. I think the only way you can love a law like the one, I mean, I'm giving you a little bit of a hint towards where I'm going with this. I think the only way you can love the law in Deuteronomy is to understand that it points you to God's ideal, not the law itself. So Jesus, he actually makes this point in Matthew 19. So um, as we just read, Jesus has a pretty strong position on divorce it could leave you feeling really defeated and condemned if you're divorced. You read that and go, what, what am I now? My mom was divorced twice. The first uh, divorce came years um, after my dad abandoned us. Okay, so he took off right after I was born and um, about three years later, I think, she filed for divorce and was given the divorce. A couple of years later, she married my stepdad. And as soon as she married my stepdad, she told me she regretted it. She told me uh, that maybe, and it was just a maybe, 
says, maybe if I'd been a Christian back then, my marriage would have made it. But I can't, I can't really say that for sure. Because the reality is that, she said, I was cruel to him. I was mean. I regretted marrying him, and I just made life miserable for both of us. And the marriage lasted no more than two years, maybe a year or two. I have very little memories. I was preschool. Very little memories of my stepdad. When I was in college at Northwestern in Roseville, um, I was taking Bible survey. And I must have come across this passage, maybe in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus talks about divorce. And um, our professor started waxing on how, you know, divorce is way too easy these days. This is back in the late 70s. This would have been in 1977, probably. And... Um, and he made this point. He said, I wouldn't even allow a divorced person to sing in the choir at my church. And I got a little bit worked up. I went up to his office and kind of dropped by. I said, can I talk to you? And he said, yeah. And, and I told him my mom's story. And I'm like, I don't know. I, don't, I just can't imagine. My mom sings in the choir. I can't imagine telling her she can't sing in the choir because she's divorced. It doesn't seem there's something wrong with that. And we did something that people can't seem to do these days anymore. We agreed to disagree. That's a, a beautiful thing, by the way, to be able to agree to disagree. It's a beautiful thing. And uh, I didn't leave there hating him or I just, I don't think you're right. I didn't quite know. I can't remember everything I said, but I, I, I don't think, I just, I don't think you're right. But in Matthew 19, Jesus says something that applies to many of the commands found in the Bible. So this is what he says in Matthew 19, beginning of verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. There's a lot that's going on here. Um, I can't give you all the background. There's a reason why this is a test. They asked, they asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. By the way, when he says, you know what he's saying? Have you ever read Genesis 1 and 2? It's an insult, all right? He's insulting them. And then he said, for this reason, he's quoting it, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but they are one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate so they come back at him. They say, why then, they ask, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Let's hold it right here. Let's hold that slide. Now that sounds like they're saying Moses commanded divorce, and that's not what they're saying. They don't believe Moses commanded divorce. What they believe is exactly what we know historically was practiced in that day. What Moses commanded was, if you're going to divorce your wife, and it was spoken to men. If you're going to divorce your wife, you must give her, this command, you must give her a certificate of divorce. And as part of the certificate of divorce, because there are hundreds of these that have been found by archaeologists, they always say, divorced, free to remarry. A certificate of divorce gave, every single time, without fail, gave the wife the right to remarry. I could go into why that's so important, but in that day, that it was really, really important to have the right to remarry. 
every time. That's, the, that's part of what's going on. There's more going on here, but that's part of what's going on here. That's what they mean. So in verse 8, Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Now hold on there. Hold on. That's that slide. Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Now that's, that's, that's just a way of speaking, saying Moses permitted because the law came through Moses. But when Jesus says Moses permitted, he's not downgrading what Moses said. It's like, hey, hey, this isn't that important because Moses said it. He's saying, he is literally saying, God permitted it because of the hardness of your heart. God permitted you to divorce. Demanded, God commanded you to give a certificate of divorce if you're going to divorce your wife. And then it goes on. But it was not this way from the beginning, Jesus said. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So he's back to what he said in chapter 5. Jesus is saying God permitted divorce even though in his ultimate purposes for marriage, for sex, for humanity, divorce shouldn't happen. And divorce also always results in adultery. That's what he's saying, or almost always results in adultery. So God is accommodating his ideal, Genesis 1 and 2, to the reality of hardened hearts. And he makes a command that causes adultery. God is making a command that results in adultery. Now, we're going to stop there today. Uh, there's more to cover. I've, like I said, I've, got, I've given you other points. But I want to just go back. I don't want to leave you totally hanging. I want to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 21 about the woman taken in battle. And what I'm about to say is not the whole picture. We'll return to it again next week, but it's part of the picture. Just one part. Do you think for one moment that the law in Deuteronomy 21 is God's ideal? It's not. It's not God's ideal. He is without a shred of doubt. He is accommodating their brokenness. When I say brokenness, that's a nice way of saying accommodating their sin, their hard hearts. He's accommodating the hardness of heart and all that. And he's not just accommodating their brokenness in Deuteronomy 21. He's actually, and we're not going to get into the details of this. I, I will next week. He's actually undermining the practices of their culture. He's actually undermining what is usually done with a woman who's taken in battle. Deuteronomy 21, when we talk about this next week, is profoundly countercultural. Profoundly countercultural. We're going to see that next week. But this is just like one step or part of the first step in falling in love with God's laws. You can look ahead and see where I'm going with the rest of it. Let me finish with this today. I don't remember a whole lot about what I said to my professor on that day. I may have, when I thought about it a little bit more, I may have said something like, you know, my, my mom wasn't a Christian when she got a divorce. Uh, scripture does not make that distinction. It doesn't, really doesn't. A marriage is a marriage. 
I may have used that argument. Um, but I know one thing that I would say today, maybe a couple of things. If I were having a discussion with my professor, I think I would lead with a question. I think I'd ask him if he'd allow an adulterer to sing in his choir. And I think I know what he would say. Absolutely not. <laughs> I would not allow an adulterer to sing in my choir. To which I'd respond by Jesus, reading what Jesus says right before that passage. That a person who lusts has already committed adultery before God. And then I'd say, if I were really being facetious, you must have a really small choir. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God who commands. We thank you that your commands are good. We don't always understand them. Sometimes they really rub us in the wrong way. But Lord, I just know the more I learn, the more I grow to trust you. And I pray that we would trust you. And I pray that as a result of today and next week that we'll walk away beginning, beginning to to maybe love your commands more than we did before. And in loving your commands, we begin to reflect your commands in everything that we do in our life. Please grow us. Transform us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.